So have you decided to follow Jesus? Appreciate Charlie for sharing those songs with us because if you're a Jesus follower, then that means you are a fool for Christ, as Paul will put it. And frankly, we can't help it, can we? We can't help it but be a fool. We can't help but speak when he asks us to speak. We can't help but go when he calls us to go because we love our Lord so much and we are desperately, desperately seeking to proclaim our love for him in the life that we live. Our first lesson when we began this series of following Jesus took us to the Jordan River and we followed him to the water to have our sins washed away, to be transformed in those waters of baptism, to put on a new identity and we've put on Christ. And then last week we followed our Lord into the wilderness to be tempted by the deceiver. And I want to share with you just a couple of more thoughts before we move on from that story. A couple of more thoughts that I believe we all need to hear. When you look into Matthew chapter 5 and you go to the temptation, there's something that Satan is going to say more than once as he tempts our Lord, and it's these words. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if is a powerful word, isn't it? It has a challenge. It has a condition to it. And what Satan is actually doing is he's tempting our Lord to prove himself. If you really are, then you'll turn these stones to bread. If you really are, you'll jump. Well, I want all of us to know that when the tempter comes to us and he tempts our identity, you know who you are. You're a child of God. And you know who you are. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. You know who you are. You've been freed from the shackles of sin. You know who you are and put your trust and your confidence in that. And don't allow the deceiver to get into your mind. Paul, when he talks about the Christian army, tells us to put on a helmet. What's that helmet? Anybody remember? The helmet of salvation. Don't let the tempter constantly make you doubt your salvation, doubt who you are. You belong to the Lord. Remember that. But we also talked about last week that it is indeed hard to live a Christian life. It is not an easy path, and that is true. And even as we get into the sermon today, our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, our Lord will bring that out to us. The way is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. That's a true statement. But don't forget the words of the Proverbs in Proverbs 13, 15. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. Maybe you've heard it expressed like this in recent memes or posts. Being fit, eating right, being healthy, it's hard, right? Being unhealthy and having a lot of health problems is even harder, isn't it? Being in a marriage and and truly love one another and work with one another and deal with one another, it can be hard. But living in a divorce home and being separated and all those issues, it's even harder, right? That's what the proverb is teaching us. 
Choose your hard and choose your hard wisely. And here's what we need to bear in mind about sin. Please remember this. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. And so our Lord is pleading with us to follow him and see how he deals with the evil one. And so I remind you again, don't doubt who you are. Don't let the tempter get in your ears. And do you remember what Jesus did after each and every temptation? How did he reply to the evil one? He replied with what? Scripture. The word was in his heart. Well, today, we're actually going to follow our Lord to his specific words. We're going to follow him up a mountain to a sermon that I'm sure you've heard about or maybe you've even read many, many times. It is the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to grasp and understand as we get into this that the name isn't exactly Appropriate. Now, I don't say that to be condescending or to be divisive in any way. Was this a mountain the way you and I typically think of a mountain? Was this like going up Pikes Peak if you've ever been out to Colorado Springs? Was it like going up into the Smokies, one of those mountains? No, it wasn't like that at all. It was probably just a hillside on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And what that, what that begs us to reflect upon is this. Why was Jesus there? Why there? If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Matthew 4 before we get to the sermon. And I want you to see what Matthew does with respect to our Lord's location of ministry. And here's what we find in verses 15 and 16. He's going to minister in the land of Zebulun. He's going to minister in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of Galilees, because the people there are dwelling in darkness. It's interesting. But if you were to go to the back of your Bible, in fact, go to the back of your Bible real quick. Everybody go to the back of your Bible to those last few pages that you rarely go to. The maps, all right? Go to the maps and go to the map of the time period of the tribes, not the time of Christ, go to the tribes, where all 12 tribes are divided up and they have those little color blotches all over the land of Palestine. Go up to the Sea of Galilee, and what do you see to the west and just to the south of the sea? The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. What you find here is our Lord is actually fulfilling the prophecy of preaching in this territory. And so he goes to Galilee. But it's not just about fulfilling a prophecy. He goes to Galilee because as the text notes, notice verse 15 again, Galilee of the Gentiles. He's not down into the city of Jerusalem, which is predominantly Hebrew. He's up in the northern end of the land around the Sea of Galilee that is mixed with Gentile as well as Jew. It is a multicultural region. And, as it's pointed out by Isaiah the prophet, in that it is true in the days of Christ, it is a land of darkness. It is a land that is filled with demon possession 
immorality, spiritual hypocrisy, Jews mixed with Gentiles. And unfortunately, there's even just a faint difference of morality in their lives. And there's even a fainter difference at times with how they worship. The pagans are worshiping their pagan gods, but most of the Jews are worshiping the vain God of self-promotion instead of honesty to Jehovah. It's a place that needs a preacher. It's a place that needs light. And go to chapter 5 now in what, verse 1, and notice what Jesus does in this very dark place. When the people come to him, he doesn't just immediately say, well, it's great to see everybody here. So glad you came. Boy, what a crowd we got today. Let me thank you for coming. He, he leaves. He leaves. And the crowd will follow him out to the mountain. I think this is important because what you see Jesus doing is he's taking the people away from all the distractions of life. He's taking them away from the city. He's taking them away from all the hustle and bustle that is around them. And he leads them out to the mountain. He leads them out to where it's just him and them. He leads them to a place that is a little bit isolated. It is a little bit, if you will, off the beaten path. And he goes up to the mountain and the people that are following him follow him to that place. And that is where he sits down to speak. It's very common in that day for those who shared the word of God, even in the synagogues, they would sit down. Wouldn't that be kind of odd for y'all if I was, personally, I don't know if I could do it. If you notice, I am a flailing talker. But Jesus sits down, so the emphasis is solely on the words. And he's going to take people with words to a place they haven't been before, a place of absolutes. You go to the very end of the sermon in chapter 7 and in verse 28, it says that they were astonished because he spoke with authority. He spoke in such a way that it's a way that they had never heard before. In that day and age, a rabbi would generally spend most of his time, if he's expounding on the law, by quoting from other rabbis. Well, here's what the text says, and here's what rabbi says say about this. Here's what rabbi so-and-so says about this. Here's what rabbi so-and-so says about this. But Jesus does it completely different. He doesn't quote anybody. He doesn't bring in a commentary. He doesn't bring in an outside thought or man's perspective. He speaks as one who wrote it. And as John says, was it? And they're astonished. Because Jesus doesn't say might, could, possibly. He says is. Absolutes. And then he's going to do this with the sermon. He takes us to a mirror. If you were to really give this sermon a true name, it would be the idea of a sermon on genuineness. Because what Jesus is going to refer to over and over and over again is the fallacy of hypocrisy. In chapter 
6 and in verse 2, as he begins this section, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. A little bit later in verse 5, when you pray, don't stand and pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. They love to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. And then if you go down to 15 and 16, he says, when it comes to your forgiveness, don't just forgive those and seek forgiveness of God. You become one who is willing to forgive others. For as you forgive others, so your heavenly Father will forgive you. Don't be somebody who's demanding Something that you're not willing to give. That's a hypocrite. And then in verse 16, he speaks of fasting. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. In Greek days, the Greek actors would often carry two masks with them. I'm playing the happy person. Now I'm playing the sad person. I'm playing the good guy. Now I'm playing the villain. Jesus uses that same word here to speak to his audience. Don't put on a mask. Drop the masks. I tell you, when it comes to hypocrisy, there's some places that we just expect it, right? Would anybody be offended if I shared with you that I think most politicians are hypocrites? Would that offend anybody here? Would they come? No. You kind of expect it. He said this, but I did this. I'm not surprised at all. He promised this, but then did that. I'm not surprised at all kind of expect it. We, we, we kind of expect it when it comes to people sometimes with finances and the corruption that is in the world around us and the way people have a crave and an appetite or have crave and uh, money and have an appetite for money. We, we, we kind of expect that and we're not too surprised. We, we, we call that kind of hypocrisy fraud. But there's some places There's some places where every single time we hear it or every single time we experience it, it just makes us shudder. And one of those places is with religion, isn't it? In fact, it was even recently one of the men who was considered to be one of the great apologists of our day. Written many books, spoke of many lectureships, spoke around the world, only to find out that after his death, he was nothing like what he proposed to be in the world around him. And it leaves a mark. And we hate that. And we desperately don't want to be that. And what Jesus is actually speaking to is he's speaking to all of us to bear in mind that what we hate, we need to run from 
with a vengeance. But he doesn't just take us to a mirror. He also takes us to where we really want to be. His sermon, when he first started out, his preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he wants us to be those who bear fruits worthy of repentance. So when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, when you get to this wonderful sermon, as we're growing in our faith and we're following our Lord, he takes us to where we want to be. And that's what this sermon is all about. It takes you where you should be. It takes you where you want to be. To those who are convicted of sin, they're now committed to a cause, and a cause in a life like no other. So let's spend a few moments this morning talking about the greatest sermon that was ever shared. If you were to sit down and read this sermon, it would probably take you about 15 minutes. Don't you wish preachers could preach a sermon in 15 minutes? Can I get an amen on that one? I'm actually going to be talking to you about a sermon that our Lord preached in 15 minutes, but I'm not even going to share with you my sermon in just today. You're going to probably get it the next week and the week after. Because it's just so deep. It's just so insightful. First of all, I love the opening. It begins with blessings. One blessing, one blessing, one blessing, one blessing after another. Jesus begins with the secrets to happiness. Happiness. This word blessing can actually mean, it can mean happy are those, favorable are those. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. In every single one of these statements, our Lord is going to take truth and he's going to turn it upside down. It's something that we call a paradox. Because he's going to talk about a hunger, a hunger that not many people have. Everybody here has a hunger. Everybody here has a hunger for food. In fact, we're always hungry for more good food, but this is a special hunger. This is a hunger for what is right. This is a hunger for what is true. Everybody cries, but this is a different morning. This is a morning in which if you cry these tears, you will truly find comfort. Jesus begins with keys to happiness. And don't you know that just grip the audience. They have never heard this kind of preaching before. And that's why it ends with astonishment. It was one of those sermons that every preacher longs to preach. Where when he's done, nobody leaves. They're astonished. They're amazed. They'd love to hear more. And here's why it was like that. Because to them, the sermon was extra special. Because it was to them. It wasn't a sermon to go and preach against everything going on in Jerusalem and all the corruption there. It wasn't a sermon preaching about all the ills and the government of Pilate up in Caesarea or even what was going on in Rome. It wasn't even talking about the next village or anything going on down the street. It was Jesus speaking directly to you. 
Sometimes you'll hear us preachers do this. This word's mentioned so many times in this text. The word you, I counted it, (laughs) is mentioned 111 times in the text. 111 times Jesus goes, you. You. 71 times he'll say, your. Your. You are the light of the world. Not you might be, not you could be. You are the light of the world. Your Father who is in heaven. You see, this is a sermon. It is just personal on so many levels. And as they were listening to our Lord speak, as they were sitting there along the Sea of Galilee, as they were sitting there on that mountain hearing words that they had never heard before, they weren't poking their neighbor going, you better be listening to this. Because they knew it was for them. And it wasn't just to them because they were being indicted or admonished, although there is some of that in there. It's hard. It was to them because it gave them hope. It gave them purpose. If you'll go to chapter 5 and in verses 13 to 16, this is so important for us to keep in mind. In our Lord's kingdom, No one who names the name of Christ, no one who has come to the waters of baptism, no one who has put him on and has been cleansed by his blood, no one is damaged goods. No one is marred. No one is dented. No one is inferred or inferred in any way. They are whole and they are purpose-filled and they become a light. And that no matter what may be your past, no matter how grave your sin may have been, no matter how large the consequences still may be looming over you, you are light. Listen to him. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and they put it under a basket or put it on a stand, but it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What made the sermon so powerful is that they, they, those who had been caught by the tempter, those who had been deceived, those who had paid a great price for sin and now had been made knew and they had great purpose and Jesus says you are a light you mean me me you and that's why they listened so intently and that's why they were so captivated by it 
I've already implied this. I'm not going to be able to get all this in today. I hope you're not disappointed. But I would like to just give you the 10,000-foot version of the Sermon on the Mount with the main points that our Lord wants us to see and understand. First of all, the title of the sermon, I don't think Jesus, every time he preached this, they went, hey, we're going to hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. That was just the location. The sermon was genuine discipleship, the life of kingdom citizens. And the sermon is about having the confidence in your faith and your trust in your Lord to take away the masks. Take away the mask. The first mask that we take away when we come to our Lord is the mask of poor theology. And so what you find beginning in verse 21 through the end of chapter 5 is you find this repeated phrase that is said many times. It's said in verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43. And the phrase is this, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. In other words, the teachers that have been teaching you have been teaching you this theology, and they've been teaching it poorly. In fact, when it comes to anger, you've been taught don't murder, but I say to you, don't hate your brother. May I share with you something interesting about that? Most of the time that we hear this lesson taught or we hear Jesus speaking in this way, we think, oh man, Jesus just came up with something brand new that had never been shared before. No, that's not true. That's actually in the old law. It just hadn't been taught correctly before. You've heard, you've heard from your teachers, you shouldn't commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust. And so what Jesus does is he takes us to the foundation. He takes us to the foundation and the principle for every single commandment, and it all begins in the heart. It's not the idea that murder or adultery or divorce or breaking an oath or retaliation is just bad in and of itself. When it's in our heart, it's wrong. Clean up your heart. Take off the mask. Take off that mask of just keeping the commandments that can only be seen by others. You go deep into your heart and look at the intent, the motive. Secondly, he goes to chapter 6 and he says, remove the mask of appearance and performance. <laughs> this is a big mask, isn't it? The mask that drives us to always want to look good in front of others, <laughs> to make sure that in the eyes of others we're seen okay. Uh, over and over again, we, we just noted that Jesus in this particular section is going to speak of the hypocrite. But here's what I want you to see. There's also another phrase that is repeated over and over again. Notice verse 4. So when you're giving, give in secret. Why? Because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, fast in secret. Why? Verse 18. Because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You want to find some great peace in your life? Quit worrying about what everybody else thinks about you.
Quit having conversations with somebody who's not even having a conversation with you. It's just going on in your mind. Quit trying to wear the mask of constantly seeking man's approval. Seek your father's approval. And even when you give, even when you fast, even when you pray and you do things that come with great devotion, they come at a great cost because you're truly putting your heart into it. Don't, 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 don't allow the tempter to get at you and make you want to do it just for the accolades of men. If nobody else sees it, if nobody else praises you, you bear this in mind, God sees it, and that's all that matters. And that's your only goal. That's a struggle, isn't it? That's hard. But Jesus says this is genuine discipleship. And then, and then he really begins to meddling because then he's going to say, I want you to remove the mask of mammon and anxiety. In other words, I want you to remove that mask that you've got to put your focus and all your effort in the idea of living with success in mind with the way this world would call success. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Don't put all your effort into the world's trophies, the world's goods, the world's accumulation of things. Bear in mind these things don't last. You put your treasure into heavenly things. And remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't serve two masters, verse 24. For either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or despise the one and be, uh, or be devoted to the one and, and, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Take away that mask. Take away the mask of being one who is consumed with worldly things. And then take away the mask of anxiety. Once heard a guy say, uh, if I don't have anything to worry about, then I'm really worried. And that's about us, isn't it? It's always got to be something to worry about. Jesus says, take away the mask of anxiety. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Understand, your Father knows what you need. Trust him. And then last, he says, take away the mask of unrighteous judgment. Uh, anybody here seen uh, the progressive commercial about the men standing there in the Home Depot and the kid walks by with the blue hair? Anybody seen that one? We all see it. We all see it. We, it's blue! That is me. I am that guy. Unfortunately, I am that guy. It's hard for me. I got it honestly from my dad. It's just, it's, does everybody else see it? Everybody else see it? You really see it? I can't believe it. It's funny, isn't it? Unless you're the guy with the blue hair. But do you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, have the honesty and the humility to look at yourself first before you become a speck hunter. Have the confidence 
with your relationship with the Lord and have the confidence with those around you. So look at yourself. Take away the mask. And look for the beams. You'll notice that Jesus isn't saying, don't judge at all. But what he is imploring his people to be are those who are able to judge righteously. And then, what does Jesus do? Well, if you know me, I love a good take-home. And Jesus has the best take-homes ever, doesn't he? The Dioko with the gospel as you go. Beware of the false prophets in sheep's clothing. Look closely at their works. Look closely at their works. Be mindful. Obedience is much more important than words. Words are meaningless without obedience. So be obedient in action, not words. And then last, what a great illustration. Be wise and build as a wise builder who builds his house on the rock and builds his house on the foundation. I mentioned when we began this series that as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, we'll become evangelists ourselves. And I believe that's true. Every single one of us here are preachers. Whether you want to be or not, you are a preacher. And here's how you preach. Preach the word all the time, and if necessary, use words. You're preaching with your example. And we need to be the people who live this sermon because those lives will preach something that is powerful. And Lord willing, will leave the world astonished in the way that these people were astonished at Jesus. We're going to spend some time in this sermon for the next week or so. But for now, I want to just leave you with just this one thought. Are you willing to take off your masks? Are we willing to be honest with ourselves? And are we willing to be uh, honest with those around us and take off our mask? That can take a lot of courage, I know. And take a lot of trust. I know. But there's nothing more liberating than being able to take off a mask and come just as you are. And when we come to Jesus, we come as those who are willing to follow him up the mountain to lay our mask at his feet and to throw ourselves upon that altar of his blood so that we can be cleansed and washed and we can begin again. And when we do that, as Jesus says, we are destined to be lights to a world of darkness and salt to a world in need of a preservative. And Jesus knows there's no point in hiding it. Jesus knows. And he says, I want you now. So today, 
Let's do like these people did who sat there and were astonished at the words of Jesus. Let's take them to heart. Maybe this week, spend some time reading the Sermon on the Mount. That might be a good thing to do. But more than anything, let's hear the hope that the Lord is offering to all of us. That we are his people. We are his light. And we are the salt. If we'll just take off a mask and come to him. If we can help you in any way in your walk with the Lord, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?